think I've recovered from that action song. Thank you, thank you for your kind words about um, my physique, Simon, and my football team. That's uh, very kind of you. That's why we made you a lay minister, that pastoral touch. <laughs> or is it the sense of humour? I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm sure we all appreciated the jokes. I haven't got too many jokes, or well, any jokes, I don't think, in this. But um, uh, hopefully, though, it is still uh, an inspiring uh, message. And um, I certainly have found the Olympics inspiring. I mean, it's a shame there's no crowds, obviously, but um, we've done well, haven't we? It's been amazing. It's becoming normal, you know, which is fantastic. And um, I just wanted to start by sharing um, one of the stories of of many I could have chosen um, of inspiration from our gold medalist. Now, does anyone know who that is? Yeah? You remember the name? I think someone said Bethany. Bethany Shriver, I think you would pronounce it. Yeah, so BMX gold medalist. And um, I've chosen her because her story is is particularly unlikely. And uh, we all love stories like that, don't we? Um, So here's uh, just a a brief summary of why her story is so remarkable. So 2017, UK Sport said that it would only, because of results up to that point, that it would only fund male riders for the Tokyo Olympics um, for BMX, so Shriver left the national setup to go solo. She had a dream, as will become clear, and she wasn't going to let anything hold her back. So without that funding, she needed to find it elsewhere, and uh, she did that through her parents, who who gave whatever money they could. She took a part-time job as a teaching assistant, which is remarkable, isn't it? And still needed to crowdfund £50,000, which she managed to do to stand a chance for even qualifying for the Olympics. She said this, it's been a very long and hard journey after she just won her semi-final runs and then gloriously the final itself. And that's an understatement because she had so many ups and downs along the way, including fracturing her wrist three times in that four-year stretch leading up to the Olympics and in 2014 twice breaking her leg. Even coming into the Tokyo Games, She hadn't competed in 18 months owing to the pandemic and earlier this year dislocated her shoulder in training. And she said this, I hope it does more for the sport now and in Great Britain. I hope we get more girls involved and boys as well. Everyone proved that if you commit to something and have fun doing it, you can be rewarded for it. I'm sure you'll agree it's a great story and the sort of courage, persistence and hard work, as well as sheer talent, of course, that the Olympics is all about. But here's the thing that I really want to stress to us today, and the reason it should inspire us too, which is that we are all called to greatness. Do you believe that? Now, obviously not Olympic greatness, unless you're me, obviously, given what Simon shared, but... um, (laughs) But glory and honour and fruitfulness, the goals that Jesus has set for us all, fulfilling our potential, fulfilling our calling, so that we too, like Paul at the end of his life, can say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, not just for me, but for all who have longed 
for his appearing. And that's why, as we heard in that passage, verse 15, Paul can say, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And it's why I couldn't help at the end of the Olympics choosing this passage, because not only does it fit really well uh, with uh, the time that we're in, but it's spoken really powerfully to me right through my life. From the very moment I became a Christian when I was 15, I came across this passage. um, And I remember saying, I was determined that I would fulfill whatever potential God had given me. I had no idea what that would look like, um, that I would have that athlete's physique that Simon has described and that I would go on to such athletic feats. Uh, But more seriously, I wanted to fulfill that call. And I hope you do too. God certainly does for you. And there's no better place to be. And those at St. Barbara's, well, they're going to be hearing this as well. Here's the remarkable thing that I think uh, should make our ears prick up. Daniel, quite independently of, of what I felt God was prompting me to, pray for, uh, to preach on, um, felt God saying the same thing to him. So they're going to be hearing this passage as well. So let's take it seriously. God obviously has this for our churches at this time, for his glory, for our good, and for both churches' blessing. And this is where I'm going to head um, as I unpack three aspects of Paul's vision of the Christian life that I think we all need to absorb. And they're quite simple. They all begin with R. First of all, it's relational. It's all about a relationship with the one who loves us and died for us, Jesus himself. Secondly, it's realistic. It's about how ministry is done and the kingdom is growing. So we're going to see how realistic Paul's model of the Christian life is. And third, it's radical. And I'm sure you've been struck by that language as you heard it read. In its focus and in its single-minded approach to getting there. But before we unpack those three things, let me pray. So Father, I pray that you would bring this passage alive to us. I pray that you would use it to bring that focus to bring that relationship and to bring that fulfillment of our potential every one of us whatever stage of life we're at that we too will look back and say i have run the race thank you father amen Okay, on to that first section and that first aspect of this model of the Christian faith, the relational element that lies at the heart of Christianity. And yet it's actually, let's be honest, far removed from what many people outside the church, most people probably assume Christianity to be all about, and even far removed from what some people in the church assume as well. Because actually we do all default to something quite different. And if we don't nurture that relationship with Jesus, with our Heavenly Father day by day, well, it's going to diminish and we're going to end up with something far less than what the Christian faith is all about. But the good news is that in this passage and the verses that immediately precede it, if you know those, are as good an antidote as we can find anywhere in Scripture. Because in the example of Paul, both before and after his encounter on the road to Damascus, we have the two approaches to Christianity, the right one and the wrong one, laid before us 
Um, first in the suffocating, joyless, unachievable, counterfeit Christianity that you'll see in Philippians 3 verses 4 to 6. And then in the true biblical way of relationship and grace in verses 7 to 9, and which Paul then unpacks in the rest of our passage. And what we really need to know is that the way of rules and religion doesn't work. It doesn't save us. It doesn't satisfy us. So who better to demonstrate that than the man who had it all? For Paul was from the right race and family. Jewish, circumcised at the textbook time from the tribe of Benjamin, a splendid tribe. More significantly, though, he was a Pharisee, which is, you probably know, uh, they were like the opinion leaders of their day and the people who did the right thing. For faith, for most Jewish people at the time, was about conformity to the law. And the Pharisees did it better than anyone else. Everyone looked to them for clarification of what the law was, which they, uh, I have to say, uh, were very happy to do, enjoying that role. Um, And they looked to them for modeling its fulfillment. They were whiter than white in their own eyes, at least, and in the eyes of many. Their self-inflated egos only punctured by their arch-critic, Jesus of Nazareth, and those who continued his mission. And we'll remember that, won't we, from the gospel stories. So what did the Pharisees do? Well, they got rid of him with the help of the Romans. And Paul had done his bit subsequently by leading the persecution of the church before he was converted on that Damascus road. In short, when it came to the religious life by the book, as the Jews at least understood it, Paul had it licked. As he put it himself, when it came to legalistic righteousness, he was faultless. Add to that being a Roman citizen from a wealthy family with the best possible religious and secular education, and he had it all. If there was any reward to be had from the way of rules and religion, he would have known. But what does he have to say about it? Well, his words here are absolutely astonishing. Let's not lose their power. Given the place in the elite that he had undoubtedly had, he said this, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage or excrement or rubbish, depending on the translation that you read, that I may gain Christ. And what he had gained had two key elements. The first, if you like, was a transaction, which he explains as not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. Reflecting the fact that ultimately he hadn't fulfilled the law because no one could. And so he had never been right with God. He knew his heart was cold as Jesus had shown him on that road to Damascus experience. And he knew that actual perfection was something that he would never achieve for himself. Only something that Jesus could impart to him through Jesus' perfect life and his perfect death. And secondly, it was about an intimate, personal relationship of love with Jesus. Suggested in those words I just read of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, or as Paul put it in Galatians, talking about the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Make no mistake, 
Paul was an alpha male. That's quite clear that all we read about him. But this was as close and loving relationship that meant everything to him. He depended on it. He cherished it. He nurtured it and he celebrated it. So I have to, at this point, ask you two questions this morning. Is your Christian life, if you'd call yourself a Christian, rules-based or grace-based at the moment? Does it feel like duty and drudgery or liberty and joy? And secondly, are you most focused on doing things for Jesus or simply talking to and being with him? Now, if your answers to those questions are all the former and not the latter, well, you're out of kilter. The default that we all have has kicked in and that religious default where we slip away from what actually it's truly all about. And ultimately, that will kill our faith. But the great news is you can come back to Jesus. You can do that this morning. You can receive refreshment for your soul again. It's what you need. It's what I need. It's what we all long for. Nothing else will do. I can't be the vicar God has called me to without it. And that's why this passage is also so precious to me. And you won't be the disciple he's called you to without it either. So that's the relational aspect, the first thing that I want to talk about. The next is the reality, the realistic one. Realistic because it's based on the reality of sacrifice and suffering as well as joy and blessing, just as Jesus said it must. So a reminder, Jesus said this as he warned his disciples about what he was calling them to. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And in the same, uh, the same moment, he said this, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Now, of course, he was talking about his own life and death there. But he was also talking about us. It's when we lay everything down that the power is unlocked. And I want to expand on that now. And this is as counter-cultural and as contrary to our instinct as the way of grace and relationship that we just looked at. For we look for comfort and security, don't we, as everyone does, failing to recognize, though, the limitations that it brings. That is the spiritual limitations. Because it stops us actually having the power of God in our lives. And so Paul writes to try and challenge that and, and knock that over for what it is. He writes this, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings. Becoming like him in his death. Now was Paul just weird? Was he just slightly crazy? He's not. He's simply telling us what Jesus himself said. Not because God wants us to suffer as such, but because he can use suffering and he will use the sacrifice of putting others first to transform us and to transform others. And nothing else will do it. That's why this matters. And that's why I'm sharing this today. So what's Paul saying? He's saying that the weakness that we experience when life is hard actually brings blessing and fruitfulness because only then do we rely on that transformational power of God. It's not suffering for its own sake, 
but it's actually allowing suffering that life throws at us anyway to be used by God to transform our character. And it's allowing the weakness of stepping out in faith, seeking to serve God, to make us depend on God's strength rather than our own. The only power that can actually transform the world, transform communities, and transform individual people's lives. And of course, it's about that sacrifice that puts others' needs about above our own, which is key to meeting those needs. Now, it is possible to do some nice things for people whilst being pretty self-centered and setting our own agenda. But the truth is, if we want to have a massive impact, we've got to be willing to put others first so that we respond to their needs when we come across them. And anyone who's had a, a true legacy of blessing for others has understood that. And has lived that out. Now we might prefer to be self-sufficient. To be self-focused. To breeze through life. But the truth is it simply isn't how character development. Or fruitful ministry. Or greatness in life actually works. As any Olympic athlete or any Christian. Who's had an impact will tell you. For it's the power of the resurrection. The power of the Holy Spirit that Paul so craves. And that we so badly need. And just as it brought Jesus from death to life, so it can bring us from death to life in conversion. And others from death to life. As we share our faith and as we help them to grow in faith. And they are set free from the things that hinder life in them. And are released into that life of Jesus' calling for them. Becoming the people with the fulfillment And the peace that God called them to be. It's the way of the cross for the people of the cross. The only way in which true glory can be gained. So that's my second section. Brings us on to the third and final one. The radical aspect of our faith. Which comes from the goal on which our life is based. Now here's a key maxim which... I think any high achiever in any field will, will echo. We have to aim for something to achieve something. Do you believe that? It's true, isn't it? Almost without exception. And it's a principle that's captured so memorably in those words that uh, Simon has alluded to, which uh, was read for us uh, by Jane as well. I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on to win the goal, towards the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards. So what is that goal for Paul and what should it be for us? Well, in short, the goal is whatever Jesus has called us to, which, of course, in Paul's case was to be the apostle to the Gentiles which was no easy task. And we all benefit from it, don't we? What he achieved, spreading Christianity across the world, writing much of the New Testament for us as well. We've all got very great reason to be grateful that he pursued his goal as single-mindedly and bravely as he did. Yet here's the thing. Pressing on towards the goal, as we've heard already, was not to be the exclusive characteristic of him or apostles, or especially enthusiastic Christians, or religious type people, or people with a particular calling or gifting or personality type. 
It wasn't just for people in that first generation. It's not just for vicars or church staff or those in leadership roles. Rather, as we've already noted, all of us who are mature should take such a view of things. So that's you as well as me. So what are we called to? Well, of course, like Paul, we are called to be now what one day we will become in heaven. His reference to being called heavenwards makes that clear. And we do that through holiness and intimacy with Jesus in relationship, as well as doing his work through sharing our faith in love, service, and words. But we, like him, also have our own particular calling. And that's something that only you can discern, albeit with the help and encouragement of others. It's about recognizing the gifts and the opportunities we've been given And seeking to use them for the kingdom. And it's about recognizing that God calls us to serve him in particular ways at particular times. Whether you're 18 or 8 or 88. He always has plans for us in every stage of life. Whatever limitations or opportunities we have. You don't retire from the mission of Jesus. You simply find new ways to play your part. So that's what we're to press into, to press on towards. If you don't know what your calling is specifically to you, ask God to reveal it to you. And if you do know, but haven't really got got going with it yet, or maybe the pandemic has stopped it, well, please let us pray for you and offer advice and practical support as well. But pressing on towards the goal isn't just about knowing what the goal is. It's also about pursuing that goal with real determination and persistence, just as Bethany Shriver did and as Christian greats down the ages have too. And it's about doing it with an absolute dependence on God, as we've heard, as that's the only way it will have the impact we seek. And of course, it's about letting go of things that hold us back as well. Now, some of them are particular to us, particular fears, particular issues, things we're trapped in, whether it's sins or situations or, or preoccupations or distractions, whatever it is. We need to be set free from those things if they're holding us back. Others are common to all of us or most of us, not least the effects of the pandemic, which has destabilized us, demotivated us. And in some cases, left us fearful and depressed as well. Now, we've done a lot of work, haven't we, as a church in recent months to try and tackle that. But that work is not finished. And if you need some prayer or some advice from someone uh, to help you with that, to really move on finally from that pandemic as we as a nation, hopefully, are moving on from it now. Well, come and ask for it. We don't want any of us to be held back. When one part of the body is not able to be what it's been called to be, then we all miss out. Let's tackle this together so that we can all play our part. And just let us know if we can help you in any way. Well, I've reached the end of what I want to share. And I just want to leave some time now for us to process where we're at And what our individual response will be. Now this is about scriptures that have fed me. And let me just share with you today that for me, this is about 
greater intimacy and intentionality in my life. Greater focus on growing closer to Jesus day by day. I think I've let that slip, you know, in part of the pandemic at least. And it's about clearer goals and strategies for our growth as a church. That's my job as a leader, to pray for that, to listen to God for that, and to put it into practice. But what about you? What do you need to press on towards? What is Jesus' heart and longing for you? So I'm going to leave some time for us to pray and listen now to dream and reflect. So let me give you a minute or two, and then I'm going to pray for us all.